0: great is thy faithfulness great is thy faithfulness morning by Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word great is thy faithfulness Morning. This, this morning's text is from Galatians chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Right. Well, let's pray together. Father God, you are worthy of all praise and glory and honor. You are our rock and our refuge. God, in this world of busyness and chaos, we just ask that you would. Help us be a people of stillness. A people who come into your presence and dwell upon your goodness and your mercy and your love. God, even this morning, we ask that you would still the busyness of our minds. God, all the things that crowd and distract us. Let us dwell on your word. We ask that your spirit would. Uh, shape us through your word to the praise of your glorious grace amen all right how's everybody doing this morning so good yeah awesome had a great foundations no fundamentals we should use different letters right fundamentals class people must have heard that john mark was teaching because there were no chairs in there it was packed out Uh, It was awesome. Next week, we'll talk hospitality, then we'll start over and go through all five of those again. Um, But as you might be aware, we are kicking off our series on the book of Galatians this morning. Technically, we kicked it off last week as we walked through the book, but now we're going to slow things down. And just to warn you here at the outset, we are going to have to do a lot of setup today as we jump into this letter as i said last week the word of god is living and active it is applicable to our lives and this letter is a wealth of glorious truth that is for us but to best glean the truth contained in this letter we must first understand what paul was communicating to the galatians Because this was, first and foremost, a letter to a specific people at a specific time dealing with a very specific problem in the church, primarily how Judaism and the gospel go together. And so before we can dive into the content of Paul's letter to the Galatian churches, we need to understand a little bit about the history of the Jewish people and their culture as well as where this letter fits into the timeline of the early church. Because it's incredibly difficult for us as 21st century Americans to wrap our minds around the first century at all, but much, much even more, first century Jewish culture, right? We, we don't grasp that. And, and to add to the complexity, it was a really confusing time in Jewish culture. Jesus had been killed by the Jewish religious elite. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He poured out his spirit, and the spirit had been moving in miraculous ways. This new understanding of God's word, grace through Jesus Christ, was exploding. And the cultural understanding of who God's people are was expanding beyond the confines of the Jewish people and Jewish culture. It was Hard for a lot of people to comprehend, including some of the disciples. Everything they thought they knew was being challenged. And so just to begin, we must understand that historically there was no difference between Jewish religion and Jewish culture. They were one and the same. The nation of Israel was a nation called and founded by God. They were literally God's people. Their governing system from priests to judges to kings, as well as their law itself, which framed up their entire existence, was given to them by God. So, unlike our modern Western culture, where it's not abnormal to ask an American, though Typically, we try not to, but to ask them, what what is your religion, or do you believe anything at all? That's a a normal question, but that question wouldn't have even made sense to a first-century Jew because their entire ethnic identity was wrapped up in God and in the law of God. Everyone knew that the Jews were God's people, and the Gentiles, us, everyone else, were outsiders. They were unclean, heathen sinners. Now, we know, having read the whole Bible, we know that God's plan from the beginning was always bigger than the Jews. In Genesis 12, God told Abraham that he was going to bless him so that through his family all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. God's redemptive plan was always about more than Israel. But we have Thousands of years of God building and shaping, protecting, and directing this one nation. And there wasn't a lot of inclusivity in the Old Testament people of God, right? It was about Israel. And even when Jesus came onto the scene, his primary earthly ministry was to the Jews. Even though it quickly becomes clear that the Jewish religious establishment was also his primary enemy, Jesus was still a Jewish Messiah dealing mainly with Jewish people. There were signs that things may be changing. We see that Jesus came for more than law-abiding citizens, that, that faithfulness to the law wasn't enough. We see Jesus interacting with Gentiles, like the woman at the well saying, the hour is coming. And it's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. There was this foreshadowing of change, but it had not yet been revealed fully. Even when Jesus calls the 12 and sends them out, he sends them to the Jews. He sends them to the people of God. This was still very much an ethnic religion at that point. And then you get to Pentecost. After Christ had ascended, the Spirit is poured out on a bunch of Jewish people who speak in all different languages to a bunch of Jewish people. And the church began to grow. People began to trust in Jesus, but they're still primarily Jewish. Christianity was still primarily a Jewish religion. And then we read in Acts chapter 9, Saul, the super Jew, the Christian hater, known for his hard-lined Jewishness, has this encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus blinds him and sends him to this guy named Ananias, which freaks Ananias out because he's heard about Saul and he hadn't heard anything good. But this is what God says to Ananias. He says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Jesus says that Paul, the super Jew, is a chosen instrument to proclaim grace and peace with God to the unclean Gentile sinners. This would have been unimaginable. Only the supernatural work of Jesus could change this cold, dark heart. Like, this was a dude that wouldn't even touch a Gentile, right? And God says, I chose you. And God kind of kicks wide the door of redemption beyond the scope of the Jews. The saving work of Jesus is for all people. And it has nothing to do with works. It is through grace alone, not self-righteous, law-abiding, but faith and humble reliance on Jesus. And so Paul begins to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and they were seeing lives transformed. They were seeing the Spirit moving in power. They were seeing faith growing and flourishing among the Gentiles. But this caused all kinds of problems for the Jewish Christians— because their religious identity was synonymous with their cultural identity. The law and feasts and circumcision weren't just things they did. It was who they were. The idea that an uncircumcised Jewish Christian, like, that that's, doesn't make any sense. That's ridiculous. An uncircumcised Jew? But now there are Gentile believers uncircumcised, ceremonially unclean people who were a part of God's family. It was simply unthinkable that you could be a child of God and not be circumcised. Or to be a child of God and not do these daily routines and rituals and observe these feasts and follow the law, they they just couldn't comprehend that. They didn't know how to delineate between the freedom they now had through the grace of Jesus and the Old Testament commands of God on the Jewish people. And it was wreaking havoc in the church. And all of this would would ultimately come to a head in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem council when Paul and Barnabas come to the leaders of the church and the other disciples and explain what God is doing among the Gentiles and implore them, like, don't put this yoke of works around the neck of the Gentiles. Don't expect them to be circumcised or follow all of these Jewish customs and laws to be a believer. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing can be added to that. And the council would ultimately agree. And they wrote this letter for Paul and Barnabas to deliver to the churches, letting the Gentiles know that they are free from these rules and rituals. And so it's important to note that this letter, the letter to the Galatians, was written before the Jerusalem council. It was written before this clarity and how the law, before the clarity about how the law and grace go together. And so there were just a lot of Jews struggling with this. There was a lot of confusion. It was hard. Even Peter, we're going to read about in the coming weeks. He found himself on the wrong end of things, and Paul calls him out in front of all these people. So it was confusing. So that's kind of the 10,000-foot the, the view of, of the cultural and contextual situation, and hopefully that helps us get our bearings a bit. This was a letter written to address some early issues in the church, and it was, it was likely Paul's first letter that we have. And if you're wondering, like, who are the Galatians anyway? Uh, Galatia was, was this Roman province in Asia Minor where Paul evangelized on his first missionary journey. And it says, to the churches, this is a multiple, a group of churches, uh, cities like Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, all these cities that we read about in the book of Acts. And it appears as though Paul wrote this letter pretty soon after planting these churches we'll read next week in verse 6, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. So quickly. So it's, a, it's apparently pretty soon after Paul had planted these churches that some false teachers came in and were trying to discredit Paul along with his gospel of grace. Saying things like, This guy wasn't even one of the twelve. He wasn't with Jesus. And therefore, his gospel carries no weight, no authority. And they were telling the Gentiles that the real gospel, the true gospel, real Christian faith is trusting in Jesus plus circumcision, plus following the law of Moses. That's, That's true faith. And I know this is a lot of information before we actually even get to the text, but I'm going to stop for a little teachable soapbox moment, and we're going to go here over and over and over throughout this entire series. The gospel plus anything is not the gospel, okay? The gospel plus anything Jesus plus anything is not the gospel. There is no Jesus plus, there is no Jesus and, there's just not. And hear me, I love the meme, right? All I need is Jesus and coffee. It's so incredibly funny, but it is also heresy. Okay? Just saying. It's heresy. We can laugh at it. I do not believe that you worship coffee, most of you. But if we try to add anything to the gospel as merit for salvation, whether that be works or knowledge or suffering, anything... We don't understand why Jesus came. It is not the gospel. So, back to the point. I wanted to discuss the background and timing of this letter to the Galatians to kind of put us on the map of where the church was at the time. It was super confusing. It was a hard topic. There were false teachers trying to manipulate. There were. But there were also people who believed in Jesus just didn't understand how the law, right, everything that they'd known about religion and life fit with the gospel. They'd waited centuries for a a Messiah who they thought would come and conquer Rome and make their life great again, And, and they got this Messiah who died and then rose again, but life was still really hard. They simply couldn't understand the fullness of why Christ had come. And the reason it's tricky and subversive is because they thought they were being faithful to God in their works. It's kind of like Paul. When he was imprisoning Christians, he thought he was protecting the faith that he loved. But in reality, he was one of its greatest enemies. So inside that cultural climate, you can understand how confusing it must have been for Gentiles during that time. They'd just been grafted into a religion with a tremendously rich history and culture, most of which they knew little about, and they have all of these Jewish experts telling them what they need to do, telling them that they're not true believers unless they check all of these boxes, add all of these rules to their life. And they were saying that Paul had no authority to be teaching them in the first place. And so when Paul kicks off his letter, he comes out swinging. And it's good. Paul, this whole letter, Paul is angry. Makes me happy. It's righteous anger. Should make you happy too. And he he comes out, he amps up his customary salutation, right? He can't even say hi without getting into it. He typically say Paul an apostle of Christ by the will of God, right? Here's who I am. But instead he just goes right at it. He goes right at this claim that he's not a true apostle. He says, "Paul an apostle not from man or not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me." It's like fighting words. It's like, "Here's who I am." And Paul starts with this amped-up salutation because the basic plan of these false teachers was if we invalidate the man, we invalidate the message, right? Who's Paul? Who who is this guy? He wasn't one of the 12. He didn't walk with Jesus. I mean, he may have known one of them, but he wasn't sent by a great teacher. Maybe he touched an apostle once, but that didn't work. He's not someone to be followed. He's a self-proclaimed apostle, or at best, he knows some. And so Paul just kicks off Leslie, hey, I am an apostle, and it's not an apostleship by man or through man, but through Jesus Christ himself and God the Father. And what we need to understand is that in the first century, there were all different kinds of apostles. Alright? There were tons. The, the Jewish Sanhedrin had apostles. Paul used to be an apostle. He was That kind of apostle, appointed by men, sent out out on his mission of terror by the Jewish leaders. And so what Paul is doing here, even in his salutation, is basically describing the difference between a lowercase a apostle and a capital A apostle. He's like, some of you jokers are called apostles, just like I once was called an apostle, because of a, a bunch of important guys, self proclaimed important guys wearing funny clothing, sent you somewhere. They gathered around, they said, Hey, go here. That's literally the meaning of an apostle, to be sent out, a sent one. He's like, That's your idea of an apostle. So if your wife later this afternoon asked you to go get tacos for dinner, guess what? You're a taco apostle. <laughs> it's awesome, right? You were sent out on a taco mission. You're a taco apostle. And Paul's like, my apostleship is not like that. I wasn't sent out by men or through men, but by Jesus Christ himself. Not like the 12. Paul didn't walk with Jesus, but Jesus quite dramatically met Paul on the road to Damascus and commissioned him for this gospel work. So when we talk about biblical apostleship, capital A apostleship, we are talking about people who physically saw Jesus and were sent out by him, which means it is a very short list and the list is not getting any longer. It's just not. And Paul's going to go into lots more detail in this letter about his conversion experience and his authority as an apostle. So we will get there as we press into this letter. But for the rest of our time, I just want to kind of sit in verses 3 through 5 because just like Paul started out by laying the groundwork for his apostleship, here in verses 3 through 5, Paul is going to summarize the driving message of the gospel that he's going to be walking through and repeating throughout this letter. In verse 3 through 5 we read, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so, Paul is going to, he began by defending his authority as an apostle in order to defend his message. And his message is the gospel. It is the gospel of grace and peace. That's how he starts out, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And and these two words encapsulate Paul's gospel, The the nature of salvation is peace. It's reconciliation. It's peace with God, peace with man, peace within. That's the nature is peace, and the source of salvation is grace, God's free favor. Irrespective of any human merit or works, it is his loving kindness to the undeserving. And this grace and peace flow from God the Father and the Son together. And so Paul says the nature and the source of salvation is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and then he goes on to describe three elements of Jesus sacrifice for us. These basic elements of the gospel. He says, "Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. So firstly, he says that Jesus gave himself for our sins. Some translations say Jesus sacrificed himself for our sins. And this is integral for us to understand, While, while the catalyst of Christ's sacrifice was the triune love of God. The motivator was the love of God. The purpose of his sacrifice was for sin. That is why he came. His death was a sin offering. And so, if you're walking through the Bible reading plan with us, we are in the thick of God laying out all kinds of sin offerings in Leviticus, right? Not the most exhilarating thing to read. It's okay. But it makes so clear the seriousness of sin. Blood was required to cover these sins, and yet still the blood of lambs and goats is insufficient. They just have to kill more and more. Jesus' death was the perfect final sacrifice. The sin offering by which our sins are put away once and for all. The wrath of God is satisfied. He bore the punishment that our sin required. See, Paul doesn't go into detail here, but in chapter 3 he'll explain that Christ actually became a curse for us. He bore in his righteous person the judgment which our sin deserved. This is such a crucial point for us and and for these Galatians because Romans 3.20 says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No one. That is, there is nothing we can do in and of ourselves to warrant God's favor. Not circumcision or the law of Moses for the Galatians, nor any good deed or service or suffering on our part. Salvation is a free gift. Only through the grace of Jesus who gave himself for our sin. And this is a hard message in a culture that doesn't even realize we need saving. That doesn't even recognize their own sinfulness. There's a a never-ending stream of entertainment and lies telling us to follow your heart. Do what feels good. Don't submit to any authority. Don't let some authority over you define who you are or why you're on this earth, whether it be the God of creation or the physiological reality of creation. You define who you are because you are the God of your life. And our culture likes to think that this is some sort of new, enlightened thinking, right? We're building a big tower. Like, we've figured this out. I'm God. Awesome. It's only taken thousands of years to realize I'm actually God. Right? But it's really just a ridiculous flashback to the garden, isn't it? It's human sin on perpetual repeat. The temptation of the serpent was, serpent was I'm getting excited, Slow down. You will be like God, right? You'll be like God. And yet, in the midst of man's rebellion against God, that began in the garden and continues to this day, Jesus came as an offering for sin. To free us from the bondage of our self-proclaimed deification and to invite us into a relationship with our creator God. So Paul says, he gave himself for our sins, and then he says, to deliver us from the present evil age. So if the nature of Christ's death on the cross was for our sins, then the object of Christ's death was to rescue us, to deliver us from this present age of wickedness. See, the gospel is a rescue mission. It is an emancipation from a state of bondage, from thinking that we can be our own gods. What we're being saved out of is not the world. It's not. It's easy to misread that. We are not being saved out of this evil world, but from the present evil age. God's saving work in the world is not a plan of deportation. He's not whisking us away and leaving the world behind. It is a plan of redemption. He is making all things new. When Jesus prayed for us in John 17, verse 15, he prayed to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And he prays this because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Jesus didn't come to take us out of the world, but to free us from the bondage of the evil one, the bondage of our flesh and sin, because the evil one has power over the world. You see, Scripture talks about these two ages. There is this age, and there is the age to come. And the age to come was inaugurated by Jesus. So currently, these, these two ages are running simultaneously until Christ returns in glory and he, he puts an end to the present evil age through judgment and he consummate, cons- consummates the new eternal kingdom. We're sitting in this middle time. And this fits perfectly with our mission and vision series from a few weeks back. Jesus came to deliver us from this present evil age and to invite us into this new age, this new kingdom. We are the foretaste of the coming kingdom of God. Through Jesus Christ, we've been called to live this out together, this new kingdom reality. Imperfect as it may be until we are fully sanctified Our call is to be a foretaste of God's kingdom on earth, to foster gospel culture, and to invite people into the eternal presence of God. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sin to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. It was the Father's will to sacrifice his Son, And we just read that Jesus gave himself for our sin. This was not just according to Christ's will as if the Father were reluctant, nor was it the Father imposing his will upon the Son, Jesus. In the cross, the will of the Father and the Son were in perfect harmony. And so just to tie these three things together, the nature of Christ's death is a sacrifice for sin. The object was to rescue us out of this present evil age, and its origin was the gracious will of the Father and the Son. This is the glorious truth of the gospel that we proclaim, which leads Peter, after only the first paragraph, to end with a doxology. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the gospel That Paul is so passionately defending. This is why he's angry. And so, here at the outset of this book, my prayer is that we would see the simplicity and the magnitude of Paul's message. As we said during our vision series, the gospel is simple in form and life changing in practice. We never graduate from the school of the gospel. We never move on to the next greater thing. We're not going to level up. There's no other tier in our faith. The gospel that saves is the gospel that sustains and shapes and informs every area of our lives. And it is a gospel of grace. And there is only one gospel. It was a pressing issue back then, and it is a pressing issue now because it's so easy for us to listen to the voices of our flesh, and they're typically, typically going to lie like one of two ways, either saying your sin is too egregious to ever be approved by God. He could never love you or accept you. You are just too horrible. Or the flesh will say, you got this. You don't need anything. You can earn it. Be righteous. Galvanize your place in God's kingdom. You're nailing it. Way to go. But neither of these are the gospel. If you think you're righteous, I can assure you, you are never going to be righteous enough to warrant God's favor. And if you think you're wicked and sinful, I can assure you, you are far more wicked than you think. Way more. But... The glorious news of the gospel is that Christ was righteous on our behalf. He bore the weight of our sin. He satisfied the just wrath of God on our behalf so that when we trust in Jesus, God no longer sees our sin, but Christ's righteousness on our behalf. And there is no other gospel. So look to Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith, and there is salvation nowhere else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Father God, there is salvation nowhere else. The gospel of Jesus is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. We have been redeemed. We have been purchased from death, adopted as sons and daughters. And it is all by your grace. A simple truth changes everything, God, but we struggle to live inside of it. We try to build an identity, find worth in what we do and what we have. God, forgive us. we ask that you would forgive us for chasing after these things apart from you. For forgetting the grace that you've given us in Jesus. We ask that you would increase our faith. Make us a people who have an unwavering confidence in you and who live out the love that we have experienced from you is a resounding proclamation of your glory to the world. Amen.
0: Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamblin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org.